me again. Uh, Justin's gone uh, this week, and so uh, I'm stepping in for him. We're going to continue this conversation on the Sermon uh, on the Mount. Um, when I was, uh, first became a Christian, 15, 16, I started really exploring the Bible and, and diving into it and reading through it, and uh, this, this Sermon on the Mount, this, this Matthew, it's also found in Luke, shorter version in Mark, and uh, uh, just, just fascinated me because I was, I was someone who was trying to figure out what it meant to be a follower of Jesus and, uh, and, and trying to really discover that on my own. And so I gravitated to the Gospels, as one usually does, because it's, it's a little bit easier entry into the life of, of Jesus as you're, as you're learning about him, trying to follow him. And, uh, and I would just sit and read these uh, passages over and over again because I wanted to learn what it meant to actually just, you know, live this out. And so um, uh, I would process them and think about them and think about them and try to actually execute them in my life. It was like this list of things to do and not do for me. And as a young person, that maybe not is the worst way to approach it. Uh, but ultimately, as I grew older and found that every time in my own effort I tried to obey the list or, uh, you know, adhere to the list, uh, I ultimately find myself uh, lacking, uh, uh, failing, uh, struggling in these areas uh, because I viewed these teachings as simply the rules that I need to do because I'm a follower of Jesus. Uh, and as I began to grow and mature and learn uh, more, I actually found out um, and began to discover that, that these sets of teachings that Jesus offers us uh, on, on the mountain uh, aren't, aren't about simply behavior modification. And that's how I, 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 uh, I treated it. That these are the teachings that help me. I got to modify my behavior around these things. But actually what Jesus is trying to do here, he's trying to uproot these deep-seated heart issues. He's trying to uproot and unearth the things that go on inside of our hearts. Ways that we sabotage our own humanity and relationships. Jesus is getting at the very core of the ways that we sabotage our own Humanity, And he's bringing to the surface these realities that should make us cringe at times, should make us squirmy at times, because we know that there's something inside of us that needs to be exposed. And Jesus is getting at the root of the problem. The Sermon on the Mount is about getting to the heart. You can live in the head space, and that's where uh, and the, the Israelites seem to be. They, they seem to gravitate towards the head space. And you're going to see this unpacked as we go through our sets of, of Scripture this morning and how Jesus addresses that. Um, but how what he really wants to do is get to the thing that's actually going to bring change in someone's life, is that when we begin to wrestle with and deal Deal with the things that are deep inside of us. And that's what Jesus is trying to do. And what we'll find here is that Jesus uses the law, the Torah, to, to unpack these things that are going on inside of our hearts. And Jesus does usually three things with the Torah. He will affirm it. 
in some instances on this uh, when he's talking about marriage and, and he'll reaffirm the teachings in the law. In some instances, he'll modify it. Um, like we worked through uh, the previous week where uh, adultery, and it's like, hey, look, you know, don't do adultery. And we're like, yeah, okay. And he goes, and if you do this, you're actually doing that. And so he's modifying, he's, he's making little subtle uh, advances in the law. Uh, and then sometimes he changes it all together. He, he rejects it in the instance of what we're going to discover today when we learn about, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And he says, actually, don't do that. And so Jesus, he deals with the law in these three different kind of ways that he unpacks it. And, um, and, and the goal for us is that we be the kinds of people that can reflect back onto the promises of Israel, but through the lens of Jesus. Through the lens of Jesus. So anytime we work backwards through the Old Testament, we should be looking through the lens of how Jesus saw the Old Testament. Jesus didn't reject the Old Testament. He actually said that I'm here to fulfill all of these things. And, um, and when we learn uh, later on in Jesus, he's, he actually uh, tells people that like, if you want to learn about what I'm doing, you actually need to know uh, the Old Testament. And so, um, but, but we look at it through the lens of Jesus. And it's important to remember too, and I'll throw this out here before we begin unpacking, um, that, that we've got to sit in the back of our head that the Bible wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. You see, what we're going to discover in these sets of, of texts is that there's a lot of nuance in, in, in cultural um, things that are happening that, that we don't inherently understand because we don't live in their time, in their space, in their culture, with all of the things that happened. And so it, it wasn't written to us. And so there are things in there that we have to actually begin to unpack and think about and, and work through. But it was written for us, which is to say, as we work through these things, and we begin to understand them, it offers us wisdom so that we know how to live the life that God is calling us all to. And so it offers us the wisdom we need to work through what it means to be fully human as God's image bearers. And so it wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. So as we work and to unpack these next sets of teachings, we got to keep that in the back of our mind because there's a lot of things that are happening behind the scenes that aren't inherently uh, visible in the words themselves. And so we are in environments like this where we collect together and we wrestle with the text and we talk about it. Um, and that's what we're doing here today. We're going to go through three different sets of teachings that Jesus offers. The, the teachings that he offers aren't going to be as hard as what John Whitaker had to share last week. Okay, so like he had, he had a rough one. But these are still things that we, we still need to, to address and understand and how we actually apply them to our lives. So, so they're still difficult just not as difficult as, as what John had, had to share. And he did a wonderful job unpacking those verses. But we're going to go through these things, and they're, they're these three sets of teachings that on surface level, they seem kind of random. They seem like they're just kind of, here's this, oh, and then here's this, oh, and then here's this. But upon further investigation, we're going to actually discover that there's a harmony within this teaching that offers us wisdom in how we can have flourishing relationships in our lives. And this is what this next set of teachings 
is offering us. Now, in most sermons and prep and things like that, there are, are witty illustrations or moving stories that happen. And, and I'll just be honest with you. As I was working to prepare this talk this morning, I really struggled with, I'm like, man, I got to have a fun story. I got to have something that's going to move people or like something that's going to... And, and the reality is, it's just this morning, I just, we're just going to work through the text. And we're going to let it sit in our hearts and in our minds... And we're going to let the Holy Spirit do, do what he does best, which is to bring conviction into our lives that we can then begin. It's going to shine a light and expose things in our hearts that we, we need to deal with. And, and so we're just, it's going to might be this morning feel a little bit more like a Bible study than like a preachy sermon. And I hope we're okay with that. Um, but I think it's okay every now and then to offer that. So we're going to just work through the text and we're going to make observations together. Um, observations about what Jesus might be saying. And, and some of the observations I'm going to make might be things that you, you would make if you were reading the text. Um, um, but I'm also probably going to offer some observations that, that maybe you didn't think to make. And I, and I hope that through all of that, we can work through and begin to discover more of, of what God has for us as we, as we work to have healthy relationships in our lives. All right, so you with me? Okay, hey, so what we're going to do, we're in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 33. We've got in your Bibles, uh, most of your Bibles on some level are going to probably have these divided into three sections. It's going to be uh, 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 5 verse 33 through the end of the chapter. And so if you look at it, there's probably going to be a heading there like, uh, you know, oaths, or retaliation, and, and love your enemies. And that those are the three sections that we're going to unpack and, and look at. So I just want to begin to dive in. We're going to start in verse 33. And uh, we're going to look at this idea of character and image bearing, image bearing. So it's going to feel disjointed. We're going to go here. We're going to go here. We're going to go here. And then at the end, we're going to pull it all together and see how, how this offers us wisdom for our lives today. So um, Jesus begins to say this again. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath. But fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Now, what's Jesus doing here? Jesus is, is, is riffing off of Leviticus uh, chapter 19, verse 12. And Jesus does this. When he quotes like the Old Testament, a lot of times he's riffing on it. Um, he doesn't quote it verbatim. He takes basically the idea or the thought and, and just shares it. Um, but it's Leviticus 19, 12. And it says, you must not swear falsely in my name so, the, so that you do not profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So this is the primary teaching that Jesus is riffing on. I say, hey, you've heard that the law, the Torah said that this is how you ought to behave. And then he unpacks it further. Verse 34, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, upon first reading, we look at this and we go, okay, on some level, Jesus is talking about our ability to be truthful 
and that when we communicate, we shouldn't have to be the kinds of people that have to make promises on, like, are yet, like when we say we're gonna be somewhere, we should be there. When we say we're gonna do something, we should do it. We shouldn't have to be like, I promise you this time I'm gonna be there, you know? Like, no, our yes should be yes, our no should be no. And, and on, on the surface, we would go, yes, that is true. But when we begin to look at the words that Jesus is saying, and even the, the Leviticus quote that he's referring to, there are a few more questions that we can begin to ask about this. Okay? So one of it is, is looking at Leviticus 19.12. You must not swear falsely in my name so that you do not profane the name of your God. For some reason, and this, these are the questions that we got to ask, for some reason, like when we make an oath, God seems to think that that's like a, a, uh, something that goes against him, that it profanes his name, okay? When, when, when we, we do these things, when we, when we make promises and we don't fulfill them, it actually profanes God's name. And then Jesus, if you caught this at the very end, if you're, if you're, if you're reading slowly and you're taking your time through it, Jesus makes this weird statement. He says, any of this, anything more than this comes from the evil one, the enemy. Now, if we're following along so far, Jesus hasn't said that. He didn't say it about adultery, that when you do this, this comes from the enemy, the evil one. For some reason, Jesus seems to apply this weightiness to making promises and oaths. And when we do these sorts of things and don't follow through, whatever reason, and we, and we, we live in this, this pattern of, of being like this, it actually comes from the enemy. And immediately we would go, well, that seems a little harsh. For, for, it's just an oath, right? It's just a promise. Why is that so weighty? And let me offer this perspective for you. Why would this profane God's Name. Why swearing? I promise, I, I swear to God, I'm going to do this for you. Right? I, pro, I, swear, I promise on, you know, my, my mother's name. You know, whatever these like, these, this means I'm going to do it because I apply the weight of my words to this other thing that should give validity to what I'm about to say. That's what we're doing. Okay? And that, that's what he's, he's addressing here. And the reason why that is something we shouldn't do has to do with the concept of image bearing image bearing. You see, in the creation narrative, God creates the humans, and he says that he created them in whose image? You remember? Whose image? God, he, said, he said, our God, so God referring to himself. We are created in God's image, right? That word image in the Hebrew is selam, selam. The other time that that word appears in the Hebrew Bible, selam, is in reference to the commandment that we are not to make idols. Now, you might have heard me teach this before, but that word idol is the Hebrew word selim. It means image or idol. So when we, when we try to unpack the commandment to not make any idols, and we go, why wouldn't God want us to make an idol of himself? Because literally God's saying, I've already done that. It's you. You are the image. You are the, you're the, an idol represents the God that you're worshiping, right? In the ancient world, you would have an idol of the God that you, you are devoting your worship, or it reveals the identity of the God that's in power. And God said, I created you in my selim, my image, 
So you don't need to make an image because people should look at you and see God. They don't have to look at a carved thing. So if we are to embrace the image-bearing weight that we should be, we are the, the revealing um, a creation of who God is into this earth. We are his idols. We are his images, which means when we speak, we speak on behalf of the creator. It's an offense to God when we take the weight of our words and redirect it off us and God would say, no, you, your word should carry my weight because you are my image. And the reason why this comes from the enemy or the evil one is because anytime we, we redirect our image-bearing creation base of who we are to something other, that's exactly what the enemy would want of us. The enemy goes, yes, that's right, you're not. You're not. In fact, your, your words don't care. It, it actually, it's about identity. Who do we, what do we believe about ourselves? So in the relationships that we're in, we need to understand that we are images of the creator, which means we are his, his ambassadors, his representation here on this earth, so that when people look at us or hear our words, they should meet the creator. That's the reality of what's happening here. That's why something like this is so meaningful to Jesus. He's like, you don't understand. Your words have power. They have my power and life. So, so stop redirecting out, making, well, I promise by this, or I swear by this, like, and, and then not even doing it. You're misrepresenting me. Because when people meet you, they should meet God. So, do not swear falsely. He moves on from this teaching to one that's far more popular that we hear about quite a bit. Let's start in verse 38. You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. How many of you heard, like, we know this part of the Bible, right? We hear it all the time. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 19, uh, chapter 19, 20, and 21. It's a principle that Israel had about how to deal with those who oppress them and come against them. And it says this, the rest of the people will hear and become afraid to keep doing such evil among you. So it's like, so God's telling, when you do these things, it's actually gonna set a precedence that people are gonna be afraid to mess with you. Because you must not show pity. The principle will be life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and hand for hand, and foot for foot. So Jesus is beginning to walk into this idea of, of what we think justice looks like. What we think justice looks like, the way of Jesus. And he starts with this teaching again, and then he begins to unpack this. So we have, if you're following with me, we have segment one, segment two, segment three. But in the middle of segment two, we have three teachings. What we have here in the Hebrew is what's called a, a, a chiastic structure, which is pointing us to the center point of this whole story. That's something for you could, to take home. We won't go too deep into that. But what's happening is now he goes into three sets of examples. He says, but I tell you, he said, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, retaliation. Someone hurts you, this is, you got you to pay it back. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. 
If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Point one. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Point two. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Point three. What's happening here in these three points? Well, it's all in, in the words that he uses. So we, we hear this, turn the other cheek. And this is one that's thrown around a lot, right? Like, that it's tied to, the idea that most people have is that it's tied to nonviolence. Like a nonviolent way to be. So Christians should be the non, the nonviolent. And we will go, yeah, right? We shouldn't be the kinds of people that, that enact violence uh, into the world. Um, um, and, and so we tend to let it sit there. And, and we struggle with this because it means, well, if someone hurts me, does that mean I just have to be a doormat? If someone's attacking me, coming into my home, does that mean I shouldn't defend? Because Jesus said, turn the other cheek. If someone's hurting my family, does that mean I just got to lay down and let him do it? I would offer no. I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to. And the reason I believe that is the way that he makes this statement. Where is the person struck? The right cheek. Which is an indication in the ancient world, no one led with the left. The right hand was the dominant hand. It was the more important hand. It was the hand that you fought battles with. In the book of Judges, there's a judge named Ehud. Ehud catches the king by surprise because he actually attacks with his left hand, which is something they wouldn't have expected. The right hand was more dominant. The right hand was more dominant. So if I'm to strike someone on the right cheek with my right hand, what am I doing? Am I doing this? Or am I doing this? Most likely, Jesus is talking about a backhand which is a form of insult. You are less than me. You are lower than me. This isn't as much an act of violence as it is an insult towards your humanity. You're less than me. You're nothing. It's an insult action. Not a, pow, you know, fight, let's get into it. It's a, you mean nothing to me type of action. And Jesus says, when someone treats you that way, our response is to offer them the other cheek. Now, what, what could Jesus possibly mean by that? My guess, and, and this is, we can wrestle with this, right? This is exploring scripture together. My guess is this. This has to do with forgiveness. Because when someone insults us and hurts us, our reaction is to pull back in a way and to protect. You will never do this to me again. I'm going to protect myself from your ability to hurt me. And I think what Jesus is getting at is that we have to be the kinds of people that are willing to forgive, which means to expose ourselves to the potential of someone striking us again. I'm not arguing, right, that, that, that there's layers to this in, like, relational abuse, and, and this, that's not where I'm going. I'm not saying that. And if you find yourself in a place where abuse is happening in a marriage or a relationship, you need to get out, and you need to find help, and you need to come talk to someone. I'm just—I'm speaking in, in, in the generality of the attitude of our hearts is what Jesus is getting at. What's the attitude of my heart when someone hurts me? Is it to hurt them back 
Is it to recoil and protect and avoid? Or can I find myself in a place where I'm willing to forgive, which also means I got to expose myself to being hurt again? Then he moves on to this peculiar, kind of like the first two are like, um, you know, um, oh, this is the second part of the middle. And if anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. This is a, um, uh, Jesus paints a picture of a law court, someone suing you. They, they are desiring something from you. And Jesus is offering this, this, this statement to say, are you willing to provide your shirt too? Now, in the ancient world, nakedness was shameful. So there's usually two pieces of clothing on a person. Their, their shirt, their, their uh, mane, and then they would have a, a tunic, a cloak around them. So if someone's trying to take your coat, are you willing to undress and hand them your shirt too? Which is to put you in a place of, of shame to provide for them. And I think what Jesus might be hinting on is the attitudes of our hearts towards serving and loving people. Are we willing to be reduced so that others can flourish? Even the people that are trying to take advantage of us. We have to be the kinds of people to say, if that's what you need, let me go one step further. Even if it means my shame, I'm willing to provide for you. Have you ever been in a, in a, in a situation at work where you have a coworker or a boss who seemingly is trying to take advantage of you and our response is to protect and to fight and to do whatever instead of going, okay, what more do you need? If this is what you need, let's go. Can you imagine the kind of response that would garner in a workplace? If our response when we feel like we're being taken advantage of is to, to, to not fight back and not retaliate, but actually to offer a step of grace further and say, oh, you want this? Let me give you more than that. Which leads us to our third part of this teaching. If someone asks you to go, if, some, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now within this, this is the, there's some cultural context here. The, the, the key word there is forces. In this, in this time frame, who would force someone to do something uh, uh, against an Israelite? Who, who is occupying the land that would force anyone to do anything? The Romans, the Romans. This is actually a take on a Roman law. Roman soldiers were allowed, there was a law that allowed them to force anybody to carry their belongings. So if a Roman soldier had a bunch of gear they're trying to get from one place to another, they could force a citizen to carry their gear for them, but only for one mile. That was the law. They could only go a mile. They couldn't force that citizen to go any further than that. And so Jesus is going a step further in this teaching to say, if someone forces you to go one mile, he's trying to tell this audience, are you willing to actually see the need that they have and go an extra mile? Would you be willing to do that? And the wisdom that that offers us today is that there are times that we are put in positions where we must do things. And the attitude of our hearts needs to be put in check of like, well, I'm, I'm not, whatever, I'll just do the bare minimum. Get away with, ah, whatever. Versus, no, there's a need that you have. Am I willing to go the extra mile for you? So Jesus has these teachings that he unpacks. And the questions we gotta ask is, what does justice look like in the kingdom of God? And these are just little sketches that Jesus provides for us. 
Whatever situation you're in, whatever situation you're in, you need to think through it for yourself. What would it mean to reflect God's generous love despite the pressure and provocation, despite your own anger and frustration? This is what we're wrestling with here. Jesus is getting at the heart. This isn't simple like, here's the three things I have to do. He's going, no, 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 it's more than that. There's something going in our hearts. Why do we respond the way that we respond? And we need to deal with that. And when you find yourself frustrated and anger is coming out of you, we've got to wrestle with that. And if we say to ourselves, Joe, this is impossible. I just, I can't do it. You don't know my situation. You don't know what I'm going through. That's impossible. I can't do that. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 30, they spit on him, grabbed the stick, and struck him on the head with it. Verse 28, they stripped him naked. Verse 31, they led him away to crucify him. Jesus not only gave us wisdom on how to act, he also lived it. He was struck and didn't retaliate. He was stripped naked and didn't retaliate. He was forced to carry his cross and he went the extra mile for all of us. Jesus images for us what this looks like so when we think it's impossible, we can look to our King Jesus and say, no, no, I can't do this. Jesus opens up the way to be human. His is a way that through him, the cycles of pain, suffering, and death are reversed. And this is what's happening here. You see, in our world, there's a cycle. It's just moving and moving and moving. And that cycle is pain and hurt. You hurt me, I'm gonna hurt you. It's a cycle. It's suffering. It's a cycle. I'm gonna make you suffer. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to lie to you. I'm going to cheat you. I'm going to abuse you. It's a cycle. And we cannot stop that cycle of sin by participating in it. Do you hear me? Because all you do is keep the cycle going. Jesus offers us a way to stop that cycle, and he says you got to stop and go the other way. The way of Jesus is the only way to end the cycle of pain and suffering in this world. It's the way of Jesus. And he offers us this wisdom to say we need to reflect in the way that we're reacting towards the people in our lives, whether they're people we like or people we don't like. It doesn't matter. We can be the people that continue the cycle of pain and hurting, or we can be the kinds of people that go the other direction to turn the cheek, to offer our shirt, to go the extra mile. The world would say, no, stop at the mile, sue them back, fight them back. Jesus says that just continues the pain and the cycle in our world. He's offering us a way to actually be human, not animals. Animals retaliate. Humans love. Then he gets to love your enemies. Now, there's a big one. We know this one. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, Leviticus 19.18, and hate your enemy. Now, Jesus does something incredible here. Leviticus 19.18 is the teaching that the Israelites should be the kinds of people that love their enemies, welcome them in, care for them when they're hurting, and, and, and serve them. Okay? 
But nowhere in the Old Testament or in the teachings of Israel does it say, hate your enemy. It's not there. So what Jesus is doing is he's calling out the people that are there going, you've heard it said, love your enemies. And everybody goes, yep, yep, yep. And he goes, and you hear people saying and hate, or, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. So now he's not simply taking a law. He's actually saying, you've, ad you've adopted something beyond the law. Because nowhere does it say and hate your enemies. You're the ones doing that. You've added to this idea that I can love my neighbors, but I should hate my enemies. And then he goes on to say, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, because he caused the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and send a rain on the righteous and the righteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Now, <laughs> we got to sit on this. Jesus just said, does not God bless the righteous and the unrighteous? Doesn't he cause rain to fall on them just like he does you? There's this idea sometimes that creeps into our brains that just because we're followers of God means we're going to get special treatment in certain areas of our lives that others don't get. Just read Ecclesiastes and you'll see that that, that, that kind of theology is left wanting that doesn't mean the blessings of god aren't there but we shouldn't be the kinds of people that just sit and expect it he says look he causes the sunrise on the evil and the good send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous these are blessing things these are the the days of our lives continuing these are the the, the ability to to be provide with the the rain and, and and these sorts of things these are provision statements and he says that we need to be the kinds of people that love our enemies. Now, what's that word love? Okay, because we often think of like love as like warm feelings towards. That's not what, that's not what Jesus is referring to, that you need to have warm feelings towards your enemies. There, there are people that you're not going to get along with. Can we just be real? You don't need to be best friends with everybody. There are people that you're just not going to get along with. The difference is, is will you love them? And when we think of the word love, we got to reflect on maybe what Paul offered us. Love is a hard word to define exactly, so what Paul does is he talks about what it's not. You remember 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. You know, it is not boast. It is not seeking revenge. It's like, so we've got to understand that love, biblical love is the kind of love that are we willing to be patient with those that we don't agree with? Are we willing to be kind are we willing to not boast when they're in a bad place? Are we going to be the kinds of people that aren't going to celebrate when we see them suffering? That's love. And Jesus is saying, you need to be the kinds of people that can, can act in such a way that you're demonstrating love for them. We're not talking about being best friends with, with your, you know, people that you, you, you disagree with, but you have to be the kinds of people that don't envy them, that you're patient with them, you're kind to them. Kindness, right? You don't boast. So, these are, so, so just reflect on 1 Corinthians 13 to understand this idea of what it means to love our enemies. But at the heart of this, Jesus is talking about comparison. 
This is what James calls the sin of partiality. In James chapter two, he writes about how the church was treating people differently based off of their economical needs or their social position. They were reserving certain seats of the house for the high up people, the people that were prominent in that society, and then the people that were poor and rejected, they were keeping towards the back. And James says, that's a sin. And you shouldn't do that. So it's this idea that with our enemies, do we treat them with the sin of partiality? Meaning, do I favor my neighbor and, I, and, I, and I'm great to them and I'm loving and kind towards them, but my enemy I hate and reject? The sin of partiality. And so when we unpack this a little bit more, we see that love, at the end of the day, is the primary ethic of the kingdom of God. Love is the primary ethic of the kingdom of God. And Jesus said that we are the salt and the light. And that our good deeds become a way to reveal the glory of God's goodness. The beauty which draws people into God's orbit is the way that we treat our good deeds. This is how we do it. These, these teachings, this is how we do it. There's no other way. As my Mandalorian peeps out here, this is the way. This is the way. This is the way. There's no other way. God's kingdom will advance when we are the kinds of people that act and react in these sorts of ways, that we turn the cheek, that we give our shirt, that we, that we go the extra mile, that, that, that our words actually mean something, are authentically true, and that we actually love even our enemies, not just the people that we get along with. This is the ethic of the kingdom of God. Our relationships, and we're going to tie this home here, our relationships are defined by our ability to be authentic and true, our ability to forgive and serve, and our ability to love. For our relationships to flourish in all aspects of our lives, not just the relationships I have with my friends, but all people, my, all spaces, we need to be the kinds of people who are authentic and true, forgive and serve, and to love well. Here's our take home, and I wrap up with this. Jesus thinks you can do this. You realize that? He actually thinks you can do this. How do I know that? The last verse of this chapter. The last verse of this chapter. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus offers us to enter into the reality that we can be these kinds of people. Not through our own strength and ability, because Lord knows if it's on me, I'm going to fail. But because I am willing to surrender myself to the way of Jesus and follow his good and his wisdom, I can actually be the kind of person that lives this out. Jesus thinks you can do this. He showed you the way through his own life, and he just says, follow, trust me, trust me. When you want to retaliate, he says, stop, trust me. But that means they're not going to pay for it. He goes, I, maybe, just trust me. But that means that they're this, they're going to get what they want. I, maybe. Do you trust me? Do you trust that my way is actually the better way? The way that's going to lead you to life and life more abundantly. That's the promise Jesus invites us into. I will give you life and life more abundantly. What does that look like? When we trust him and live his way. We are not living an abundant life when we choose the other way. So I want to invite us into that reality to wrestle with it. What are the ways that our hearts have been exposed this morning? 
And what are the things that Jesus is calling us into? As we get ready for communion, our, our um, helpers are going to come up. And if you did not grab communion on your way in, go ahead and grab Lift your hand, let them know that you need it. They'll make their way to the back and you can go ahead and uh, get one. And, um, and we're gonna go through communion. But as we prepare for our time for communion, I didn't get one, so I better grab one real quick. One right here. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I want us to take a moment and just let this teaching sit on us. What are the things that, that Jesus is uprooting in your heart right now? Again, these aren't just, you know, moral behavioral things that we need to do. It's actually addressing what's going on inside of me. What does Jesus need to work on?